Hey, good listener. Today's show is dedicated to Ruth Rosner, who recently passed away at the ripe young age of almost 106. She's remembered for cursing beautifully, kissing Ernest Hemingway, becoming sober at 72, and inspiring us all to get out and vote. Ruth's story can be heard on our one-year anniversary episode. Let's all be a little more Ruthy in our own lifetimes. Sarah Woodard, and you are entering a world gone good. Well, hello, my name is Steve, and this is World Gone Good, the podcast where we shine the light into the darkness or find the light to prove there is still good out there. Yes, there is. Have you subscribed to us on the platform you're listening in on right now? Have you rated and reviewed us? These are the best ways to help us spread the good. So if you've done that already, thank you. And if you still have to do it, let's get on it, people. Help us spread the good. So here's something cool about having a podcast. People contact you and ask to come on your show. I laugh because it blows my mind. I'm always like, wait, you can see me? And then I remember, yeah, we put out a new episode every Wednesday. So yeah, you can kind of see me or hear me. You know, you you get it. You get it. So um, I got an email from Sarah an author of children's books. And she pitched me, which again, made me go, whoa. I mean, I spend a lot of time sending emails to potential guests, pitching myself to them. So it's always a nice turnabout when somebody comes to me and says, I want to be on your show. What's uniquely good about Sarah is her books. Are her books? Are her books. Good. Learn English. Okay. And um, how they promote activism kids taking action in the world we now have and the world they want to hope it become. With all the craziness of the last few years and even more the last couple weeks, it's so important to remind ourselves and our kids that we have the power to make good happen. And so this is my guest, author Sarah Woodard. She has a personal connection to Mother Earth and she channels that connection into the more than 40 children's books she's published. She shares the good talk of helping parents and teachers raise the next generation of activists and how to deal with compassion fatigue. You are a storyteller is what I would call you because I'm a storyteller too. So I'm going to start really wide and we're going to move our way in. Here's your first question. We're going to have a conversation. What is good about a story? Oh, I love that question. I think there's so many things that are good about a story, actually. I'm I'm a huge sci-fi fan. So thinking like Star Trek, right? Like those stories take place in the future. But if you actually watch them through the lens of like, but where does this fit in today? you see a lot of parallels of like what's actually happening in society, even though they take place like forever in the future. Right. So to me, that's a huge, a huge important thing about stories. You know, they talk about that, that there's 10 stories, eight stories, and we've just been retelling them over and over. Do you buy into that? Cause I think that's a bunch of bullshit. What do you think? <laughs> so I would say that there are certain themes that recur. Sure. Right. But I don't think that we're retelling the same stories over and over. Why would we do that? 
right? If, if we had already told all the stories that needed to be told, there would be no place for people like you and I to tell more stories. I think that there are themes that recur, but those are the themes that keep recurring in our own lives. And those need to be retold in different ways because we learn something new every time. Do you think everyone has a story to tell? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not everyone feels comfortable, maybe, and not everyone knows how, perhaps, but I think everyone has a story. And for you, where do your stories begin? For me, the, the, the stories that I tell, my books, they start in a variety of ways. They generally with some sort of an inspiration, which often comes from like a post I see on social media or like sometimes even commercials, which I know nobody watches commercials anymore and I'm a dork because I won't pay for streaming, but you know, whatever, like random places. And I'll just kind of put it up to the universe and be like, Hey, is this, is this a story? And I wait and I get a whisper. Sometimes if it's a story, I get a whisper, like, okay, it's either like a, you know, a character's name or the first line or the title or something. And then I sit down and I write. And unlike a lot of writers, like I don't lock myself in a room and go, okay, I have to write so many words today and we're going to get the, no, that is just a way to drive yourself batty. I sit, you know, I wait for that whisper and then I sit down and I just let the words kind of flow through me onto the page. Like if I'm writing like, like my pitch email to you, perhaps, right? I hear the words in my head and, and then I type them. When I'm writing stories in this, with this method, I don't hear them in my head at all. They just kind of come out. That's the same with me. And so many times it's with characters. So is it, does it, does it change for you? Is it through like a character driven kind of thing where the character tells the story for you? Or is it a more of a plot driven? It depends. It really depends. And I mean, bearing in mind that children's books are, you know, much shorter than like a big novel or whatever, but it, I would say a lot of them are character driven because I, I am sort of known for having very unique heroes, right? Like this one isn't published yet, but one I just wrote that's with my editor right now, the hero is a guy on a, who works on like a, a ranch and it, his job is to take, you know, round the cows up for slaughter. And one day he's had enough. And he decides to go vegan and he tells his boss he quits. And eventually he, he, gets his, he actually gets his boss to change over to having a vegan ranch instead of a, a uh, beef ranch or whatever. And it's told in a very kid-friendly way. Like I'm putting it in the adult terms here. That story is very character-driven. Sometimes it's more about the theme or the lesson than the character, I guess. Now to clarify for everybody who's listening... Sarah, you've written over 40 children's books, but they're well, focused on... I want to clarify further, actually. Published over 40. Written, yes, thank you. Yes. Thousands. Well, no. Written, I'm at number 75 total of written, but only 40-ish wow. of those are published because I have to you know, go through the editing process and then the illustration process. I have three novels. Okay. I've completed two novels, and I'm working on my third. I've not published Excellent. any of them. But, but it's, a, it's a good exercise for me. I enjoy it. But I want to write a book that I think you could relate to. I want to write a book called These Are My Ideas, dot, 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 chapter one. And it's going to be all the stories I started. And some of them will be ones I finished. And then at the end of the chapter, it's like, did Steve finish it? I love and then this you have idea. To, you have to go to the end of the book to find out if I finished it or not. I love this idea. This is fabulous. Okay, so you publish over 40 children's books. 
But to be specific here, they're activist topics, sustainability topics, environmental topics. You're trying to work with parents, teachers to create activists of tomorrow. So my question is, what age are these books for? Depending on the topic and the approach to the topic, somewhere between four and nine, which I know is a big span. But you have to remember, especially at that those young ages, some kids are really mature and they can handle stuff that's like direct, we'll say, and some kids can't. I was a kid that was, I'm still super sensitive and I don't like anything that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, um, you know, super direct. And I don't know, and I don't necessarily write super direct, but you have to, you know, parents and, and, and teachers need to consider their audience, you know, read it first. Do you feel like your child can handle this? Perfect. If you feel like maybe that particular book is a little too whatever for your kid, find a different one because it does. It's the range four to nine. But there are open books at that point themselves. They're giant sponges. Like kids are, that, Absolutely. that, that age time, I mean, it's almost until like puberty where like they say the most amazing things and they're open to the most amazing things. I think of children as little magical beings that have the power to change adults and the world around them. That's what they are. <laughs> no, that's amazing. That's that's exactly what they are. They're little they're little computers that we're 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 <laughs> creating their hard drive and operating systems and we get one shot at it people. So don't screw up. Yeah. <laughs> And I honestly feel like, yes, they're activists of tomorrow, but also they're activists right now. Not in like, and I have to, I want to just back up for a second. People think activists and they immediately think of the people out in the streets with the picket signs screaming and yelling. That is absolutely one type of activism, but it is not the only type of activism. I think that's important to understand, especially since we're talking about kids. I am not saying let's have your kids go march in the street with picket signs. But kids are already activists just in things that they do on the playground, right? If they go, if they see a kid that is sad on the playground and they smile or they go up and they say, hey, are you okay? That's already an act of activism because they're already choosing to try to make a difference in a positive way. If a kid sees something on YouTube or reads a book or whatever and says, hey, mom, dad, you know, I, I learned this thing about how, you know, where beef comes from and I'm really uncomfortable eating it now. That's activism right there. And you're trying to involve children in doing some sort of good by uh, creating an action based on them reading something. Correct. Correct. Um, what that good looks like is going to be different for everybody, right? Because we're all, we're all different. For me, my activism is these books. These books go out into the world and create all these little ripples. And then those ripples become a wave. And that wave is where the change happens. Did you have a favorite childhood book? Were you a reader? I was, oh, most definitely a reader. And my absolute favorite book, and you probably haven't even heard of it, but my absolute most favorite book at the ages that I'm talking about, like four-ish in there, was Mike Mulligan and His Steam Shovel. Uh, of course I know Mike Mulligan and His Steam Shovel. I can see the cover. He's got overalls on, I think. Yes, he does. He has overalls on. The cover's red. Yes. Yeah, it's red. I can totally see that cover. Yeah. Mine was mine was Are You My Mother. Oh, that's a good one too. And uh, the monster at the end of this book with Grover, because I was terrified of everything. Oh yes, that's a super fun one. Yes. Yeah. Cause that like empowered me to not to be like turn the page and laugh and then 
You know, yeah. we found out at the end of the book that Grover is the horrible monster, much like we yeah. find out in life that I'm the horrible monster. Quick story. Um, there was a Halloween where um, we were out on the porch and these little girls come up and it was kind of dark walking up to our way, but we kind of lit it kind of creepy, you know, to get the candy. And this one little yeah. girl wouldn't come up to the, the porch and she yelled and she goes, <laughs> she's with her parents and she yells from the, the curb. She goes, are there any monsters there? And I go, no, there are no monsters. And she goes, are you a monster? And I'm standing there with a glass of wine and I'm like, well, I mean, it depends who you ask, kid. She wouldn't come up after that. Her parents enjoyed that. <laughs> so why did that book resonate with you then? And why does it stay a memory for you now? I think, honestly, because embedded in this story is kindness, right? Like, for, So for people who don't really know the story, the plot is basically that Mike Mulligan has a steam shovel. And she has a name, but I'm not going to tell you that because I want you to read the book. Um, and they, you know, they work really, they're very hard workers and they, they usually get all the work and whatever, but then more modern equipment starts to come in and they can't find a job. And so they start traveling and they finally find, you know, Popperville where they were Popperville, you know, they're ready. They're like, yes, we'll hire you to dig the, the, ba- the basement for our new town hall or whatever it is. And they work really fast and really hard and they get it dug in just one day. But they dug so fast and so hard, they forgot to leave themselves a way out. And this is where the kindness comes in really a lot is at first, like everybody's like, what are we going to do? What are we going to, how do we get them out? And, blah, blah, blah. and one little, I think it's a little boy comes up with this idea and they transform the steam shovel into the heating unit for the building. And Mike Mulligan gets to become the caretaker, the janitor, whatever you want to call it. For, for the building and he gets to stay with his, you know, his steam shovel is like his friend. It's, you know, anthropomorphized a little bit. So he gets to stay with her and he has a new job since his job sort of became obsolete because the equipment changed. And it's just, I don't know, it's beautiful to me. <laughs> you have a personal connection to Mother Earth, which is in your bio. Yes. What is that personal connection and how does it flow through you into your, into your books? Well, it flow, it's, it's everything. Um, so I think I've always sort of felt that connection. Like one of my fondest memories as a little kid is we were, I think I was like four or five when we moved. So I was very young when this memory took place, but we had this in our front yard, we had this bush and it was like a circle, it like grew in a circle, but there was like just a little opening. And I'm sure as an adult, you couldn't even see it. But me being a little short thing close to the ground, you know, I saw it and I used to go and sit in this bush. And it was just like the most peaceful, amazing, like when people say like, go to a happy place in your head, I go to that bush and I sit there. Um, that's, that was, that was that place for me. And it started at a really young age, I think, just feeling really connected to mother earth and really interested in it and fascinated by it. And and not in like a sciencey way, but like in a, in like in a, in a, I am in awe kind of way. As I got older, that eventually became I actually trained as a shamanic practitioner, which sort of just deepened that connection as well as sort of taught me some new ways to work with Mother Earth and Mother Earth energies and how to protect her. And that work ultimately is how I connect and draw and and come up with these books. Like that's that's a big part of the process. It I. I'm sure I could write without them. I mean, I, I, I wanted to be a, an author since as long as I can remember. But 
I write what I write the way that I write it because of this connection. Do you think that there are topics that an author like yourself cannot speak about to children? Are there topics to avoid? I don't believe there are. Um, I believe you have to handle them differently with a child than you would with an adult. Um, right. Like you can't, at least I feel like in good conscience, you can't, you know, hit a child over the head with some really horrifying things, but that doesn't mean you can't talk about them. You just have to approach them differently. I don't think anything is off limits. I think there's just ways to do it that are so that the child still feels like they personally are safe. And instead of feeling horrified and scared, they feel empowered to do something. Tell my audience in your collection, what's the quintessential book that screams Sarah? What's the one that is like the most personal or the one that is the, like, if we had to get to know you, this is the book Um, to get to know you. I guess probably um, Ellie of the Woods, which is actually an award winner as well. Um, But that's not why I picked it. But so Ellie's story kind of mirrors mine. Um, and actually her, I have not published these yet, but her story does continue in a series of beginning chapter books also. Um, but those aren't out yet. So just, you know, watch for those, you know, her story is very much sort of my story. Although I don't know that I realized that as I was writing it, but they all have elements of me. So that's a really hard question. (laughs) Good. I'm glad I like hard questions. Are you, are you writing daily almost like a job. I think people have an idea of us writers that, you know, we get up and we put on our ties and our pretty dresses and our hats and we get to the typewriter and clickety clackety and we drink our tea. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> or does it come in waves like it, it does oh, with me? It totally where... comes in waves, especially since I wait for that inspiration, right? It, it totally comes in waves. Right. But I do not get up and put on a pretty dress. I frequently stay in my pajamas for the entire day. And then I put on clean pajamas and go to bed. Honestly, And you can tell me if this is true for you also, Steve, but much more of my time is spent on the stuff that nobody talks about, the marketing, the the growing the author platform and and all of that stuff. It's a lot of work. Like (laughs) from between doing this podcast and having done web series and productions and doing my writing and my plays and all the things. Yeah, it's it's a lot of a lot of minutia and we both need like a team. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Like a bunch of mini us's just running around helping yes. us with that stuff. But I need also one of them to be like a physical trainer. I need one of them to pour like yes. a, a sommelier who pours me yeah, wine. Oh, totally. Like I yes. need like a, a barista. Yeah. Like we, yeah, the, yeah. the team is very, yeah, very. A chaiwala for the tea. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> yes. So like a personal chef. Yes. <laughs> you said a great pitch, wonderful pitch email to me of yourself, which I really appreciate but you talked about something in it that I'd like to talk about. You talked about compassion, compassion fatigue. Yes. What is that okay. all about? So activists will know what I will probably be familiar with the term. But for those who are not, um, as activists, we see a lot of really bad shit, to put it bluntly. We see a lot of bad shit. Um, I don't care what, I don't care what like sort of avenue your activism takes. You you see bad shit. 
and you try to meet it with love and compassion because you know that walking in there going, this is wrong, this is bullshit, nobody listens, right? And so you have to meet it with, okay, you know, we understand why you think this and, you know, let us show you a different way type of stuff, right? But it sort of like sticks to you, like energetically, like all of that bad shit, it sticks to you and it makes you really just not want to care anymore, right? I'm sure doctors are, and nurses are going through it right now with people who, and I don't want to open this can of worms, so if I do open one, let's put the lid back on it right away, but doctors and nurses right now with people who are not getting vaccinated and are not wearing masks and then coming in going, oh my God, I'm so sick and I need help. That's compassion fatigue. Like you're just kind of like, I- I'm done. I'm done trying to help. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it anymore. It's all bad. And there's only one way to cope with it that I am aware of. And if, if people have other suggestions, feel free. But the only way that I'm aware of to cope with that is you have to make time for self-care every single day. And I don't just mean like you go for a little walk and your brain is still running. Like, I mean like intense self-care, whatever that looks like for you. For some people, it's a bubble bath and good music and a book. I personally hate baths. So that's not going to be me. But whatever that looks like for you. For me, self-care looks like I sit and I knit and I watch either a favorite TV show or a favorite movie or something like that. Knitting sort of turns off my brain because I have to count the stitches. So I'm focusing on that and I'm not focusing on all the other stuff. Maybe it's meditation, whatever it is. That is the only way to, to build up resilience within yourself to get through that fatigue of just like, oh my God, like why is nobody hearing me? And why isn't this, what, like, because you do it and you feel like there's so much that has to be changed. And can you even make a difference? And you really are, but you don't always see it. And so you get overwhelmed and tired. Yeah. Does this apply back to your audience of four to nine year olds? Do you think kids are feeling this? Oh, for sure. And they don't even know how to express it, right? You know, young kids in particular, like, you know, four to nine, even younger, they, they don't have words for those emotions. They don't know how to say, like, this thing I saw really upset me and now I feel overwhelmed and scared. Right. They just act out, right? And so as parents, as teachers, as compassionate adults, however you interact with children, even if it's like in the line at the grocery store, it's on us to say, okay, this behavior is not typical for you and it's not positive. So let's talk about where this might be coming from. And to have that conversation and to draw them out and to, and to figure out what did you see here? What happened? And from there, you can start to talk to them about what the real thing is, right? Maybe they saw a thing on TV about cows going off to a slaughterhouse or whatever, right? If you can figure out what's causing them, then you can sit down and you can say, okay, well, let's try to change it then, right? Let's try to do something about it so that you can feel empowered rather than scared. Do you think that books can change the world? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. I think stories in general can change the world. And for me, that's through books. But, you know, podcasts can be a story. A TV show or a movie can be a story. But I think stories absolutely change the world. Where do people find you online and where do people find your books? Dumb question. We all know where to find books, but let's be specific. No, that's, no. there's no such thing as a dumb question in my world, because if you don't know, you don't know. 
And right. nobody should be called stupid for asking and wanting to learn. Um, There's a couple politicians I would disagree well, who okay, asked dumb maybe, questions. <laughs> maybe, but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we got two other shows to do. Go ahead. Um, so my website is my, so I'll say it and I'll, and I'll, Try to. Do you have show notes? Because maybe you could just type it in there also. Yes. Okay. No, but go ahead. Spell it out. So, Spell it out so it's sarahwoodardauthoress.wordpress.com. And so for people who are not aware, it's my last name is W-O-O-D-A-R-D. There is no W in the middle, although people imagine one quite often. Um, and then uh, all of my books are available, paperback or Kindle versions, on Amazon. And... So it's amazon.com slash author and then just slash Sarah Woodard. And it's all lowercase. For some reason, if you capitalize my name appropriately, it doesn't work. I don't know. We end these shows with two questions. Going back to anything we've already talked about or anything you just want to talk about. Question number one is who inspires you? Oh, God. I, I don't have one person that inspires me. So much inspires me. People... there's this meme that goes around quite often about Mr. Rogers saying, look for the helpers. The helpers inspire the crap out of me. And also children inspire me. Animals inspire me. Nature inspires me. I think we live in a pretty amazing place, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like that. And the final question we end every show with, it's not even a question. It's just a statement. It can be anything we already talked about, anything you want to say. Very simple. Tell me something good. Do something good. Well, this was the first thing that popped in my head, so I'm just gonna say it. And if you don't like it, we can just record something different. Um, <laughs> so my something good is that I love you, and I love everyone that is listening, and I love all of my readers and, and those readers to come. And um, I'm just super grateful that you had me on your show so that we could chat. I'll take it. I'll take some love. I think everyone listening will take some love, right? Who doesn't, right? We all could use a little more of that. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your good. Check out her more than 40 published books wherever you book best. Next time on World Gone Good. There would like be all this information about all the men, and it always pissed me off. Like, where are the women? We've all heard of Susan B. Anthony, but I never heard of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and she was literally Susan B. Anthony's partner. Together, the two of them just kicked ass, just kicked ass. I was so angry and so upset, and I just took all of that and turned it into the play. I mean, it was really a very healthy outlet. It's a, it's a wonderful obsession that I have. <laughs> It is Women's History Month, and we are going to get a good lesson in that history. No, no, her story from an expert. Amy Simon is a cultural historian, her historian, playwright, and performer for 12 years now. She has performed her ever-evolving one-person show, She's History, to sold-out houses and theaters and schools. Join us for a good deep dive into all the good women have done for our country and our planet. Amy is a longtime friend, so we've got a lot of catching up to do, including talking about the wall of photos at her house. That'll be explained. And how she now answers to the surname Grandma. 
that last part freaks me out a little bit because where did the time go? The creator and artist behind She's History is going to tell us exactly where the time has gone. Until then, be good. <laughs>